Hello there. Welcome to Primal Encounters, a podcast about the harrowing stories of humans' attempt at survival in the face of Mother Nature. Every episode, I sit my friends down and recount the tales of the dramatic, horrendous, and sometimes downright bizarre, where humans are put to their absolute limits in the outdoors, and whether they'll come out dead or alive is always uncertain. We're best friends and your hosts, a psychology student, a musician, and an ecology student. Join us as new episodes are released on the first and third Friday of the month on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, Just to let folks know, the content discussed in this podcast contains graphic and violent descriptions and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Drum rule continued from the first episode. Welcome to the official official season finale. Um, this is a part two to a multi-part uh, episode. If you are listening to this without listening to part one, you should probably go back and do that now. We are returning to our man-eating leopard of Rujapriag story with Jim Corbett. Uh, for folks who are just joining us again, let's. I just want to do a quick little we're Adonis and Axel listening uh, feature. <laughs> What was our, what were we talking about last episode? What, what's happened? Catch our catch our listeners up on on everything. They don't have to go re-listen to that first whole hour before listening to this. Oh jinkies! Well, we got homie uh, Jim Corbett, our protagonist. Uh, he is a hunter, and he is currently hunting a man-eating leopard, which has claimed a hundred over a hundred lives. Uh, currently, he is. Mm, let me. Go back, because we, I totally like spaced out some of those parts, but there was an 18 year old uh, mother who unfortunately met her demise by this leopard and decided to split up their parties. Um, one group staying at that village and then the other going to a mango plantation and where they encountered the leopard um, by poisoning yeah. yeah, poison, try to trap him in a cave. Um, and for 10 days, it was all good. And then uh, five miles away on that next day, someone died from a leopard. Yeah. So it became a ghost, I guess, and then started killing people. <laughs> it's Jesus. It's, oh, no. No, 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 no. Went to the cave and came back several uh, days later? <laughs> no, we don't know for sure, but that leopard could Were be Jesus. Were they two in the same room together? a zombie. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> zombie leopard. <laughs> well, yeah. So for Spark Notes, of course, we have Jim Corbett, who has just arrived in Rujapriag in the fall of 1925 to hunt the man-eating leopard of Rujapriag, which at the end of his hunt would have claimed about 125 lives, although Corbett contests probably more, which we'll get into that at the end. Uh, there have been a lot of failures, a lot, and Corbett eventually calls it quits in the fall of 1925 or the winter and comes back in the spring of 1926 to try again. During that time, of course, yeah, they poison it. They think it's dead. They trap it. They think it's dead. He, at some point, had shot another leopard that they thought was the man-eater, and that was not the man-eater. And so now we're back. He has just heard that somebody has been taken in the nearby village, and I am going to try and save us time. This attempt to catch the leopard goes very similar to the previous encounters. Corbett and Ibbotson set up multiple traps, including their rifles with fishing line over the triggers and their gin trap around the body that they had also poisoned in multiple spots. So they're covering all their bases. They even set up thorn bushes on one side of the body so that the leopard has to walk in front of the guns and the gin trap. 
The two men then build a machin or a big, you know, stand in a mango tree several hundred yards away. It then starts to rain and Corbett gets a sense of dread that this is just not going to be their night. And he's correct. Somehow the leopard was able to pull out the thorn bushes, successfully getting the body and eating around the poisoned portions. More incredibly, the man-eater pulled the victim's corpse in such a way the fishing line around the gun's troopers went slack and he could eat in peace. When he had had his fill, the leopard stepped over the gin trap and was momentarily caught in it, but the trap had been damaged and traveled, and the man-eater of Ruja Prayag had yet again escaped the clutches of Jim Corbett. <laughs> just so happens to be Could you imagine damaged. being this poor guy? <laughs> oh, I'd be so frustrated. Like, he not has- just, like, with, like, the animal itself, but just, like, my own capability of, like, catching an animal. Mm-hmm. And this isn't his first man-eating leopard. Like, at this point, Corbett, he's not a young guy. He's, like, I need you to ma- imagine that Corbett's in his older years. He dies in 1955, and he's hunting this in 1925. So he's an older gentleman doing all of this. And, you know, he's done this before with tigers and leopards. And it's just this time around, his tricks aren't working. Uh, so I can understand his frustration. Mm-hmm. I go fishing and I get really annoyed when my tricks don't work. <laughs> of course, not the same because I don't have the lives of hundreds of people to worry about when I go fishing. But Corbett's under a lot of stress. So from here, he actually doesn't see the leopard for several days. He at one point is sitting posted in a very unstable pine tree during a torrential storm and he can hear the leopard calling out in the night. So he tried to call back to it and maybe lure it in and it almost works, but a female leopard just beyond Corbett joins in and distracts the man-eater. The leopard lovers are unseen and unheard of for days until the male returns and kills several animals such as cattle and dogs. It's touch and go for some time Uh, and for Corbett, it's such a go for sometimes for Corbett, but the faithful day of April 14th, 1926 arrives. Do we know what this date is? I mentioned it last episode. It's what date? April 14th, 1926. Oh, it's the day that it dies, right? Yeah, this is the, this is the final day the man-eater Ruja Prayag takes a human life. Mm. Corbett was dispatched to the location as soon as possible. He found the latest and final victim was taken the evening of that day. On the evening of the day, a widow and her two children, a girl aged nine and a boy aged 12, accompanied by a neighbor's son aged eight, went to a spring a few yards from the Bengswara village to draw water for the preparation of their evening meal. The widow and her children occupied a house in the middle of the long row of homesteads. These homesteads were double-storied, the low-ceiling ground floor being used for the storage of grain and fuel, and the first floor for residences. A veranda four feet wide ran the entire length of the building, and short flights of stone steps flanked by walls gave access to the veranda, each flight of steps being used by two families. A flat courtyard 60 feet wide and 300 feet long, bordered by a low wall, extended along the whole length of the building. The neighbor's son was leading the party, was leading as the party of four approached the steps used by the widow and her children, and as the boys started to mount the steps, he saw an animal, which he mistook for a dog, lying in an open room on the ground floor, adjoining the steps. He said nothing about the animal at the time, and the others apparently did not see it. The boy was followed by the girl, and the widow came next, and her son brought up the rear. When she was halfway up the short flight of stone steps, the mother heard the heavy brass vessel her son was carrying crash on the steps and go rolling down them. Reprimanding him for his carelessness, she set her own vessel down on the veranda and turned to see what damage her son had done. At the bottom of the steps, 
she saw the overturned vessel. She went down and picked it up and looked round for her son. As he was nowhere in sight, she assumed he had got frightened and had run away, so she started calling for him. Neighbors in adjoining houses had heard the noise made by the fallen vessel, and now hearing the mother calling to her son, they came to their doors and asked what all the trouble was about. It was suggested that the boy might be hiding in one of the ground floor rooms, so as it was now getting dark in these rooms, a man lit a lantern and came down the steps towards the woman, and as he did, saw the drops of blood on the flagstones where the woman was standing. At the sound of the man's horrified... Mm, no, I'm not going to say that. At the sound of the man's horrified scream, other people descended into the courtyard, among whom was an old man who had accompanied his master on many shooting expeditions. Taking the lantern from the owner's hand, this old man followed the blood trail across the courtyard and over the low wall. Beyond the wall was a drop of eight feet into a yam field. Here in the soft earth, splayed out of marks of a leopard. Up to that moment, no one suspected that the boy had been carried off by a man-eater. For though everyone had heard about the leopard, it had never been previously been within ten miles of their village. As soon as they realized what had happened, the woman began screaming. And while some man ran to their houses for drums, others ran for guns, of which there were three in the village. And in a few minutes, pandemonium broke out. Throughout the night, the drums were beaten and guns fired. And at daylight... Daylight, the boy's body was recovered, and two men were dispatched to Rujapriak to inform me. So that's the last victim. Corbett is soon dispatched, and like clockwork, Corbett then begins his preparations to take the leopard. Heavy clouds had been gathering all evening, and at 8 p.m., when all the village sound, except for the wailing of the women, were hushed, a flash of lightning followed by a distant roll of thunder heralded an approaching storm. For an hour, the storm raged, the lightning being so continuous and brilliant that a, vat, a rat ventured into the courtyard. I should have seen and probably been able to shoot it. The rain eventually stopped, with the sky remaining overcast, visibility was reduced to a few inches. The time had now come for the leopard to start from wherever, from wherever he had been sheltering from the storm, and the time of his arrival would depend on the distance of that place from the village. The women had now stopped wailing, and in all the world where appeared to be no sound, this was what I had hoped. For all I had to warn me now that the leopard had come, sorry, this is what I, this was as I hoped, for all I had to warn me that the leopard had come were my ears, and to help them I had to use the dog chain instead of a rope. The straw that had been provided for me was much, was as dry as tinder, and my ears, straining in the black darkness, first heard the sound when it was level with my feet. Something was creeping, very stealthily creeping over the straw on which I was laying. I was wearing an article of clothing called shorts, which left my legs bare in the region of my knees. This is 1926. Present, presently against the spare skin, I could feel the hairy coat of an animal brushing against it. It could only be the man-eater, creeping up until he could lean over and get a grip of my throat. A little pressure now on my left shoulder, and to get a foothold, and then, just as I was about to press the trigger of the rifle to cause a diversion, a small animal jumped down between my arms and my chest. It was a little kitten, soaking wet that had been caught out in the storm, and finding every door shut had come to me for warmth and protection. The kitten had hardly made itself comfortable inside my coat, and I was just beginning to recover from the fright that it had given me, when from beyond the terrace fields there was some low growling, 
which gradually grew louder and then merged into the most savage fight I have ever heard. Quite evidently, the man-eater had returned to the spot where the previous night he had left his kill. And while he was searching for it in not too good a temper, another male leopard who looked upon this particular area as his hunting ground had accidentally come across him and set on him. Fights of the nature of the one that was taking place in my hearing are very unusual, for carnivores invariably keep to their own areas, and if by chance two of the same sex happen to meet, they size each other up, size each other's capabilities at a glance, and the weaker gives way to the stronger. The man-eater, though old, was a big and powerful male, and in the 500 square miles he ranged over, there was possibly no other male capable of disrupting his rule. But here at Bangswara, he was a stranger and a trespasser, and to get out of the trouble he had brought on himself, he would have to fight for his life. And this he was undoubtedly doing. So let me just pause for a moment. Can we imagine ourselves sitting in the rain and being scared shitless after a kitten jumps on you? And as you're getting nice and settled, you begin to hear the like, like the roars of leopards engaged in combat, like hundreds of yards from you. Like, what? <laughs> He's keeping his nerve incredibly well. Yeah. It's been a long battle. Apparently. So, my chance of getting a shot had now gone. And for even if the man-eater succeeded in defeating his attacker, his injuries would probably prevent him from taking any interest in kills for some time to come. There was even a possibility of the fight ending fatally for him. And here would indeed be an unexpected end to his career. Killed in an accidental encounter by one of his own kind when the combined efforts of the government and the public had failed over a period of eight years to accomplish this end. The first round, lasting about five minutes, was fought with unbathing savagery and was inconclusive, for at the end of it I could still hear both animals. After an interval of ten or fifteen minutes, the fight was resumed, but at a distance of two to three hundred yards from where it had originally started, quite evidently the local champion was getting the better of the fight and was gradually driving the intruder out of the ring. The third round was shorter than the other two, uh, but no less savage, and when another long period of silence, the fight was again resumed. The scene had receded to the shoulder of the hill, where after a few minutes it died out of hearing. There were still six hours of darkness left. Even so, I knew my mission to Bainsoire had failed, and that my hope that the fight would be fought to a finish and would end in the death of the man-eater had been short-lived. In the running fight into which the contest had now been degenerated, the man-eater would sustain injuries, but they were not likely to reduce his craving for human flesh or impair his ability to secure it. The kitten slept peacefully throughout the night, and as the first, stake of, as the first streak of dawn showed in the east, I descended into the courtyard and carried the boy to the shed where he would have, had been removed and covered him with a blanket, which previously had been used for the purpose. The headman was still asleep when I knocked on the door, I declined the tea, which I knew would take time to make, and assured him that the man-eater would never again visit his village. And when he promised to make immediate arrangements to have the boy carried to the burning gat, I set off on my long, back, my long walk back to Rujapriyad. So another failure on Corbett's part. I just, I really don't know how I'd be able to sit through something like that. Like, I know that when we're at the Denver Zoo and the lions roar, even when you're, like, on the other side of the zoo, like, a mile away from them, you can still feel it. Like, you can feel that, like, grumbly noise in your chest and just, oh, nerve-wracking. Yeah, it's unsettling at best. So having failed at capturing his quarry again, 
Corbett made the tiring 18-mile journey back to Ridge Priag to start his hunt again. During the last four miles of his walk, he noticed the tracks of the man-eater in the soft clay along the road he was walking now. It seemed he had fled from his fight the night previous and was returning to his familiar stomping grounds for of Rujapriag. And so it's here the final chapter of our saga begins. Corbett had decided on stopping by Golabri, just outside of Rujapriag, to warn the pundit who owned the pilgrim shelters about the presence of the man-eater in the vicinity. This pundit in particular was an interesting fellow. He was one of only two individuals that Corbett had met during his stay in Garhwal who had survived an encounter with the man-eater. Uh, I'll talk to you all about it after. I'm going to leave that sort of vignette so people can go purchase this book and read for themselves. But it's a crazy story how this guy survived. <laughs> now, having warned the pundit of the man-eater's return, Corbett spent the next three nights keeping watch of the Pilgrim Road while laying in a haystack. On the fourth day, Ibbotson returned from Powery to assist in the hunt, although he himself was becoming rather dismayed about the whole venture, and his concern for his friend's well-being had only grown. The two men spent the whole day going over Corbett's previous endeavors and their failures and where to go from here. Ibbotson was convinced Corbett should give up the hunt entirely for his own health, but Corbett was determined. He was convinced that if he sat over the Pilgrim Road for 10 days, the leopard who had had a habit of going down the road between that, uh, between Ruchapriag and Golabri, on an average of once every five days, would have to use it eventually, which is pretty sound, you know, logic. And then Corbett would get a shot. So reluctantly, Ibbotson consented to the plan, but told Corbett that if he did not succeed in the allotted time, 10 days, he would leave for Nanital and let some other hunter take up the task. <laughs> It's kind of rude, but yeah, I mean, fair. this is like, bro, you've been out yeah, here for months. Go yeah, home. give it up, man. Like, gotta call it quits well, eventually. It's, like almost like, it's almost like, you know, Moby Dick and the Great White Whale and, and Ahab's, like, need to get it. Like, I, I, I understand Ibbotson being like, hey, man, you need to call it quits before you become way too invested in it and it becomes your downfall. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. That evening, the men set up in the mansion tree, a set up a machin in the mango tree just a hundred yards from the pilgrim shelter, fifty yards below the pundit's home. Ibbotson returned to his bungalow with a promise to send two men to find Corbett in the morning, and the hunt began again. Those ten days went by without much incident. No sighting of the leopard from Corbett, nor anyone else, but the fresh pog marks they'd find every morning confirmed the leopard was still in the area. Once the 10 days were up, Ibbotson and Corbett regrouped. There had been no other sportsman who'd vocalized any interest in pursuing the man-eater, and both of the men could not sacrifice any more time in Rujapriag. Ibbotson had work in Powery to return to, and Corbett had work in Africa he had postponed for three months because of this. Both of the men were reluctant to leave these people to their fate with the man-eater, but with pressing work to get to, they decided to leave the issue for the night and discuss it again after some sleep. Corbett, however, had made the decision. He would spend his last night in Garhwal in a mango tree. Remember how I said to keep an eye on that mango tree in the beginning of the story? Mango tree callback. <laughs> mango tree callback. No. Okay. The moon was a few days past the full, and the valley was in darkness when, after a little, a little after 9 p.m., I saw a man carrying a lantern leave, leave the 
pilgrim shelter and crossed the road. A minute or two later, he recrossed the road and on gaining the shelter, extinguished the lantern. And at the same moment, the Pacman's dogs barked furiously. The dogs were unmistakably barking at a leopard, which quite possibly had seen the man with the lantern and was now coming down the road on its way to the shelter. At first, the, the dogs barked in the direction of the road, but after a little while, they turned and barked in my direction. The leopard had now quite evidently caught sight of the sleeping goat and lain down, out of, lain down out of sight of the dogs, which had stopped barking, to consider his next move. I knew that the leopard had arrived, and I also knew he was using my tree to stalk the goat. And the question that was tormenting me as the long minutes dragged by as whether he would skirt around the goat and kill one of the pilgrims, or whether he would kill the goat and give me a shot. During all the nights I sat in the tree, I adopted a position that would enable me to discharge my rifle with the minimum of movement and in the minimum of time. The distance between the goat and my machin was about 20 feet, but the night was so dark under the dense foliage of the tree that my straining eyes could not penetrate even this short distance. So I closed them and I concentrated on my hearing. My rifle, to which I had a small electric torch attached, was pointing in the direction of the goat. And I was just beginning to think that the leopard, assuming it was the man-eater, had rushed the shelter and was selecting a human, when there was a rush from the foot of the tree and the goat's bell tinkled sharply. Pressing the button of the torch, I saw the sights of the rifle were aligned on the shoulder of the leopard. And without, without having to move the rifle a fraction of an inch, I pressed the trigger and as I did, so the torch went out. Torches in those days were not in general as good use as they are now. And mine was the first I'd ever possessed. I'd carried it for several months and never had occasion to use it. And I did not know the life of the battery or that it was necessary to test it. When I pressed the button on this occasion, the torch gave only one dim flash and then went out. And I was again in darkness without knowing what the result of my shot had been. The echo of my shot was dying in the valley when the pundit opened his door and called out and asked if I needed any help. I was at the time listening with all my ears for any sounds that might come from the leopard. So I did not answer him and, I hurriedly sh and he hurriedly shut his door. The leopard had been lying across the road with his head away from me when I fired. And I was vaguely aware of him having sprung over the goat and gone down the hillside. And just before the pundit had called, I thought I heard what may have been a gurgling sound, but of this I could not be sure. The pilgrims had been aroused by my shot, but after murmuring for a few minutes, they resumed their sleep. The goat appeared to be on her, for from the sound of his bell, I could tell that he was moving about and apparently eating the grass of which he was given a liberal supply of each night. I had fired my shot at 10 p.m. As the moon was not due to rise for several hours, and as there was nothing I could do in the meantime, I made myself comfortable and listened and smoked. Which, by the way, if we can go back to this, again, a very nerve-wracking few hours that you're just sitting in the dark like, well, oh, that worked. <laughs> <laughs> hours later, the moon lit up the crest of the hills on the far side of the Ganges and slowly crept down into the valley. And a little later, I saw it rise over the top of the hill behind me. As soon as it was overhead, I climbed to the top of the tree, but found that the spreading branches impeded my view. Descending again to the machin, I climbed out of the branches, spreading over the road. But from here, I also found that it was not possible to see down the hillside in the direction in which I thought the leopard had gone. It was then 3 a.m., and two hours later, the moon began to pale. When nearby objects became visible in the light of day that was being born in the east, I descended from the tree and was greeted by a friendly bleat of a goat. 
Beyond the goat, and at the very edge of the road, there was a long, low rock. And on this rock, there was an inch-wide streak of blood. The leopard from which that blood had come could only have lived a minute or two. So dispensing with the precautions usually taken when following the blood trail of a carnivore, I scrambled down the road and taking up the trail on the far side of the rock, followed it for 50 yards to where the leopard was laying dead. He had slid backwards into a hole in the ground in which he was not lying crouched up with his chin resting on the edge of the hole. No marks by which I could identify the dead animal were visible. Even so, I never for a moment doubted that the leopard in the hole was the man-eater. But here was no fiend, who while watching me through the long hours had rocked and rolled with silent fiendish laughter at my vain attempts to outwit him and licked his lips in anticipation of the time when finding me off my guard for one brief moment, he would get the opportunity he was waiting for of burying his teeth in my throat. Here was an old leopard who differed from others of his kind in that his muzzle was gray and his lips lacked whiskers. The best hated and most feared animal in all of India, whose only crime, not against the laws of nature, but against the laws of man, was that he had shed human blood with no object of terrorizing man, but only in order that he might live. And who now, with his chin resting on the small rim of the hole and his eyes half closed, was peacefully sleeping his long last sleep. So he got him. <laughs> got him. <laughs> I don't know. I, I will say this. I, I, I am intrigued with how he phrases it of whose only crime, not against the laws of nature, but against the laws of man is a very interesting way in framing this whole conflict. You know, the leopard's doing what a leopard does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ibbotson was still asleep when I locked when I knocked on the glazed door, and the moment he caught sight of me, he jumped out of bed and dashing to the door, flung it open, embraced me, and the next minute was dancing round the leopard, which the men had deposited on the veranda. Shouting for tea and a hot bath for me, he called for his stenog- his stenographer and dictated telegrams to the government, the press, and my sister, and a cable to Jean. Not one question had he asked, for he knew that leopard, which I had brought home at the early hour, was the man-eater. So what need was there for questions? On that previous occasion, in spite of all the evidence that had been produced, I had maintained the leopard killed in the gin trap was not the man-eater. And on this occasion, I said nothing. Ibbotson had carried a heavy responsibility since October of the previous year. For to him, for to him was left the answering of questions of counselors anxious to please their constituents, of government officials who were daily getting more alarmed at the mounting death toll and of a press that was clamoring for results. His position had for a long time been like that of a head of police force who, knowing the identity of a noted criminal, was unable to prevent his committing further crimes, and for this was being badgered on all sides. Little wonder then that, on, that Ibbotson on the 2nd of May, 1926, was the happiest man I had ever seen, for not only was he now able to inform all the concern that the criminal had been executed, but he was also able to tell the people from the bazaars and from the surrounding villages and the pilgrims, all the whom were swarming into the compound, that the evil spirit that had tormented them for eight long years was now dead. After emptying a pot of tea and having a hot bath, I tried to get a little sleep, but fear of the repetition of the cramps that twisted my feet and from which I was only relieved by the vigorous ministrations of Ibbotson brought me out of bed. Then Ibbotson and I measured the leftward and carefully examined it. The following are the results of our measurements and examinations. 
So the leopard in total was about seven feet, six to 10 inches. He was described as a color of light straw. His hair was short and brittle. He had no whiskers. His teeth were worn and discolored, one of which was broken. His tongue and mouth were black. And in terms of wounds, he had one fresh bullet wound in the right shoulder from Corbett, one old bullet wound in the pad of his left hind foot, and a part of toe and one claw missing from that same foot. Several deep and partly healed cuts on the head, one deep and partly healed cut on the right hind leg, several partly healed cuts on the tail, and one partly healed wound on the stifle of left hind leg. This is a fucked up leopard, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so the last thing I want to read is just this last little bit from Corbett as people are finding out about the death of the leopard. When the people of our hills visit an individual for any particular reason or purpose, ask for the instance to show their gratitude or to express their thanks, it is customary for them not to go on their mission empty-handed. A rose, a marigold, or a few petals of either flower suffices, and the gift is pro-offered in hands cupped together. When the recipient has touched the gift with the tip of the fingers of his right hand, the person proffering the gift goes through the motion of pouring the gift on the recipient's feet in the same manner as if his cupped hands contained water. I have on other occasions witnessed gratitude, but never as I witnessed it on that day at Ruja Prayag, first at the inspection bungalow and later at the reception in the bazaar. Quote, he killed our only son, Sahib, and we being old, our house is now desolate. Quote, he ate the mother of my five children and the youngest is but a few months old and there is no one in the home to cook. There's no one now in the home to care for my children or cook my food. Quote, my son was taken ill at night and no one dared go to the hospital for medicine, so he died. Tragedy upon pitiful tragedy, and while I listened, the ground around my feet was strewn with flowers. And so on this next and so on May 2nd, 1926, the eight-year-long terror the people and pilgrims of Garkwall had experienced every night as the sun dipped below the horizon, the darkness shrouded their homes dissipated and was replaced by joyous celebration and relief. In Rujapraya, there is a signboard which marks the spot where the leopard was shot, and there is still a fair held at Rujapraya commemorating the killing of the leopard. I just want to note that in this book, there are many instances where Corbett is talking with the locals, trying to get an idea of you know, what this animal is, and they're really convinced it's an evil spirit. It's not a flesh and blood animal that he is going after. It is something supernatural. And while Corbett doesn't believe it 100%, I think it's commendable that he never once belittles them for feeling this way. Like, he understands, like, if he was put in that situation, he also would probably consider it a supernatural being. And I gotta be like, I'm the most analytical scientific here. That leopard's super fucking natural, y'all. Like, that is just... <laughs> The, the way it acts, it, it, it seems more spiritual in origin than just an average leopard. Um, I know we're tired, but I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that kind of stuff. It, it's an interesting take on the whole situation, but what I understand. Well, you know, I, man, I think, yeah, in that situation, I like there would be no way that I would think that something that's like has a beating heart would be able to like murder especially having the heart to like i don't know like if it was like a person right like who would have the heart to like go after children yeah <sighs> like i don't know 
But also, it could be that someone got reincarnated. Don't add this in, Corbett. Someone got reincarnated as the leopard, and the leopard was like, oh, I'm an old bitch. Let me just go after people. Oh, I don't know. But in some ways, that is, he actually talks about in the book in some of the chapters, parts that I left out because it would be like an eight-hour episode. But the superstition that these people have, they there were people who believed that this was a shapeshifter, that there were people in their village shapeshifting into the leopard. And some people died because of those accusations. Like they killed those people for it. Um, so you're not too far off in that, in that sort of line of thinking. Um, at least I, that's how I view it. Yeah. I'm reminded like a lot about, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the channel, but it's like the PBS Myths and... Oh, the Myths and Monsters? Yes. Oh, on YouTube? With William yeah. Shatner? No, like the PBS... Oh, the PBS? Oh, Monstrum. Sorry. Monstrum, Monstrum. yes. That's exactly I thought you were not about the shit no. documentary on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, not yet. Um, and it reminds me like a lot of how, you know, a lot of monsters and myths and legends are, you know kind of formed out of like really like insurmountable threats Mm -hmm. um and this is a very you know uncannily smart leopard for sure i mean i don't know animal intelligence that well that's not my forte but like animals have a knack for picking up on human behavior any behavior of animals really so if you get one leopard who's a freak about humans like (laughs) <laughs> and it looks like it dedicated a huge portion of its life to hunting and looking and watching and stalking humans. I'm not surprised by it. It seems like it's very, you know, deliberate, kind of like when your cat or your dog or, you know, does something and you feel like it's deliberate. And it's just like it's not really because, you know, it's a cat or dog. It doesn't have that ability yet. Mm-hmm. But it feels like it and I feel like to have an animal like on a rampage like for so long just killing people very like indiscriminately it feels like and just like the deliberateness of humans like it it does take you know cattle and other things but like with the first one of the first stories of um that boy who like lived with the goats and how none of the goats were harmed, but that little kid was killed. Like, that is, like, very uncannily and very creepy in that aspect. Mm-hmm. I can also, you saying that makes me think about, like, you know, if I was in the situation, like, genuinely, I can see there needs to be justification. Like, it's really hard I mean, even if I wasn't in that situation, even if, like, say, you two were eaten by a bear tomorrow, it'd be really hard not to be a little pissed at the bear, despite the fact that, like, it's just doing what a bear does. I'm saying it's because you're really close to me. Like, that's... Yeah. <laughs> not just because we're the two people of color at the table. Okay, here we go. <laughs> if my partner, who was white, uh, was killed by a bear, I'd feel very upset about it. And I would have to be like, well... If this person who is so important to me was killed, it can't be without reason. Like, it has to be because of something. And I, I don't think people hearing the answer, well, it's just wanting to eat, doesn't feel like a good justification. Yeah. So, I, I, I don't know. Like I said, I commend Corbett for, you know, his his um, 
ability to understand local and indigenous you know practices and understand that he's on the pilgrim road so like this is a very spiritual area mm-hmm. and in that that plays a lot into the hunt so anyway that's my little tangent that's the story though like i'm really excited to have told this to you all because i've been sitting here for weeks being like everybody needs to know about this fucking leopard <laughs> Any questions about the story or anything that I talked about before I list off some general facts about Indian leopards? Did it breed? Not yeah. Really, I mean, we don't know. Corbett knows that, you know, when he was calling to it, a female leopard intercepted that call and they left together. So most likely. But leopards aren't... Um, a male leopard is not rearing his young, so there was no worry about it teaching other leopards to do that. I have a story about when that does happen, though. Mm-hmm. yeah because i don't know like to me that's also kind of creepy of like i'm kind of reminded of um like D D, where you kill a dragon and then in it's, anna's campaign you yes. kill a dragon yes <laughs> yeah not in normal D. i yeah it doesn't matter <laughs> 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 pretending to say that nerds um <laughs> but yeah it's kind of like the you know, the vengeance of this being reborn is kind of, like, interesting. I mean, like, I know it probably won't happen, but to me, it makes it's a very interesting story. Yeah. Alternate storyline. I'm always, I'm happy to tell it. Um, okay, we're getting tired, so let me start listing off facts about them. This is all about Indian leopards, let me clarify. I'm not talking about African leopards, I'm talking about Indian leopards because that's the leopard that he would have been hunting. Mm-hmm. So their lifespan is between 12 and 17 years. Uh, body weight-wise, males are between 50 and 75 kilograms, females 20 to 60 kilograms. Their height is between 45 and 80 centimeters, while their canines are about 2 to 3 inches. The head to body length, a male is about 4 to 4 to, five, four to four and a half feet, while a female is about 3.5 to 3.9 feet. Uh, their tail length is 2.5 to 3 feet for a male and 2.5 to 2.10 feet for a female. Um, so when he measured his leopard at 6 feet or 7 feet, it's kind of like the biggest they get. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big animal. Very Chad leopard. Oh my gosh. <laughs> they can run up to 50 and 60 mile, or kilometers an hour and they leap about 6.5 meters horizontally and 3.5 meters vertically. So they can get about, what, 9, 10 feet in the air. I'm good. Just standing up. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, uh, so leopards are a little smaller than the other big cat species, but their head is the largest part of their body and their tails are the longest, which can measure up to 3 feet. Like most species, male leopards are bigger than females, so they're sexually dimorphic. The leopard's coat consists of a background of pale cream yellow on its underside that darkens gradually to a golden brown on its backside. They have broad paws, their face, head, throat, chest, and legs are covered with dark spots, and overall their body is covered in many rosettes. The Indian leopard has larger rosettes than any other subspecies, with a paler coat in desert habitats grayer and colder climates, and more ochre in rainforest habitats. Like other leopard subspecies, the pattern of the rosettes is unique to each individual and can be used to tell them apart. It is estimated that about 12,000 and 14,000 leopards occur in India, and the population is the most genetically diverse and outbred of all subspecies in Asia. However, the population has been severely affected by poaching for skins and body parts. 
there were more than 3,000 leopards poached in India between 1994 and 2010. The latest IUCN assessment, which groups all leopard subspecies as vulnerable, recommends a full assessment of the Indian leopard population, as there may now be less than 10,000 mature individuals. Populations have declined following habitat loss, fragmentation, poaching for illegal trade of skin body parts, and persecution due to conflict situations. So stuff like, you know, the man-eating leopard of Jabriac. Like other leopard species or subspecies, the Indian leopard are, is a solitary predator who remains well camouflaged at night, but comes down from the trees to hunt during the day. Where they coexist with competing predators like hyenas and dole, they are more likely to drag their kills up trees. They are opportunistic hunters built for strength rather than speed, with large skulls and powerful jaw muscles to kill medium-sized herbivores, such as cheetal, sambar, and langur, which is a monkey species, by the, by the way. But they're also known to prey on spotted deer, nilai, wild pig, cattle, hare, dog, and porcupine. In most of the national parks, wildlife sanctuaries, and tiger reserves in India, le leopards are sympatric with many other carnivores like sloth bear, striped hyena, jackal, Indian jungle cat, fishing cat, etc. However, Indian leopards are not sympatric with Bengal tigers. Most of the time, tigers push leopards to stay near buffer area or meet human localities. When I say sympatric, I mean like, can they share an ecosystem together without conflict? Uh, I actually follow Sam Hell. She is like a cool tiger uh, biologist who does a lot of census work in Nepal. Uh, she talks about how when you do camera traps, you can pretty much tell if a tiger is in an area if a leopard's there. Because <laughs> usually a leopard won't be there if a tiger's present. Mm -hmm. Leopards can tolerate proximity to humans better than any big cat. Their comfort with being around human settlements is evident from the fact that many leopards boldly explore cities and come near rural settle settlements. The situation is very real in today's era where rapid urbanization has led to them being more dependent on farm animals for food. Today, designated leopard reserves need to be cornered, cordoned off from other sanctuaries. Uh, so for example, about the density, Mumbai, uh, you know, Mumbai, India, the Sanjay Gandhi National Park in Mumbai's metropolitan region has the highest documented density of leopards in the world at about 26 leopards per 100 uh, uh, kilometers squared, a new study has found. So that's a lot of leopards yeah. in an area where there's a good portion of the population. So uh, leopards, like many cats, mate all year round. The gestation period is around 90 to 110 days, and they generally deliver two to three cubs. Each cub weighs only about 18 to 22 ounces, so 700 to 600 to 700 grams, and they're blind and nearly hairless at birth. Unfortunately, only two out of 10 cubs make it to adulthood. Most of the cubs get killed by other predators to reduce competition. And when leopard cubs are only a year and a half, they are ready to live on their own, and at approximately three will be able to procreate on their own. I'm gonna throw a fun question at you guys. Uh, how do you tell the difference between a jaguar and a leopard? Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Their spot patterns, right? That's one of them. Mm -hmm. It's in a location. It is. So the very first question you have to ask yourself is, where are you? Jaguars <laughs> are only endemic to the Americas, and leopards are endemic to Africa and Asia. So if you are in Central or South America, it's probably a jaguar you're seeing. And if you're in Africa or in India, for example, it's probably a leopard you're seeing. 
But uh, let me. Besides geography, these two cats have other distinguishing behaviors. Uh, <laughs> if big cats had superhero personas, leopards would be Spider-Man and jaguars would be Aquaman. Leopards are the only wild cats that are known to drag their meals into trees. They do this to protect themselves and their food from lions. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Just imagining Spider-Man doing this. Yes. <laughs> He's like dragging his kill up a Empire State Christ. Building. <laughs> Um, yeah, so they drag their food up the trees to protect themselves from lions, tigers, and other predators who would try to steal it. The jaguar's superpower is that it's the most aquatic of all the seven big cat species. They thrive in a variety of wet habitats, included the flooded forests and the Brazilian Pantanal wetlands. They also differ in hunting behavior. Leopards use their agility to hunt animals like impala, springbok, other sort of hoofed creatures and they kill their prey with either a suffocating bite to the throat or to the back of the neck. Jaguars, on the other hand, use their powerful jaws to crush the skull of species like capybara, peccaries, and caiman. If you look closely, you can tell the difference between the coats of the two big cats. So as Axel was saying, while leopards are covered in a more solid spot uh, in rosette, jaguars sport blocky rosettes with distinct internal spots. So they have spots inside of spots. There are other physical differences between the two. Jaguars, on average, are stockier and heavier. Jaguars are actually the third largest cat in the world. So tiger, lion, well, a mer-tiger, African lion, jaguar. Leopards are smaller. Uh, they have a leaner build and longer tails that assist with them in arboreal excursions. Um, so because they are tree dwellers, they need a tail for balance. Well, jaguars don't really need that as much. They're, they don't do trees. <laughs> <laughs> So here's my fun fact. Where do you think the name leopard comes from? Leo from like, you know, lion or cat, feline. You're right. That's the first part. I'm not good with pard <laughs> words. So <laughs> pard could mean uh, spots or something or pattern. The name leopard arrived from the Greek word leopardus, which means a mixture of leon, lion, and pardus, panther. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You were, you were panther, close, though. Yeah. So, uh, last thing I want to say before we get to our fun category is, is how do you avoid being attacked by a leopard? Because especially if we're considering that they are densely populated in an area that has some of the highest populations of people, conflict is going to arise. And so it's really important to have the good skill sets uh, and this is actually kind of useful for other big cats as well. Um, they are very similar in terms of hunting behavior, not necessarily like the killing blow, but you know, kitty cat can be kitty cat. So to avoid, of course, being attacked, don't approach, duh. Especially if you see cubs either alone or with their mom. Keep small children secure at night when camping in areas frequented by leopards. If a leopard charges, you shout, clap, wave your arms to appear bigger, you know, just I'm not worth the fight. <laughs> If you see a leopard on the street, the cat will come onto your land or property if there is food there. Keep your surroundings devoid of garbage as this attracts feral dogs and other livestock, which in turn attracts the leopards. Be alert, especially after dark when leopards are most active, and avoid going into thick vegetated area after dark. If you have to move around in the dark, ensure that you have a companion with you. Carry a torch or a stick, play loud music so that they will not mistake you for another animal, uh, you see, leopards never attack people who appear bigger in size. Therefore, children and adults sitting in a crouched position are the people who are in the greatest potential danger. Do not leave your kids unattended. 
If the cat is in your immediate area, be calm and allow it to leave on its own. Don't panic. Finally, don't form a crowd around a leopard. Don't scream or attack it. The last thing you want to do is frighten a cornered leopard because it will make it much more likely to injure someone in a desperate bid of escape. So for do's and don'ts, of course, uh, ensure that your children are not alone in the dark hours in areas where leopards or other carnivores are present. If you have dogs, make sure they are enclosed in cages in the dark hours. The same holds true for medium-sized livestock. Often dogs come attracted to garbage, so of course, as I said, make sure that the waste disposal, uh, disposal is good on your property. And do not make a demand for trapping if the animal has not done anything to humans. Any amount of trapping will not remove their presence entirely, and other leopards will come to use the vacant territories. Arbitrary removal can increase the problem for you. So a uh, good example is, you know, if you have a puma in your, in your neighborhood, like a big male puma, the worst thing you could do is get rid of it because it means that its position as the dominant puma now opens to who knows what other type of puma that wants to get in, especially younger males who may not have the same understanding to leave humans alone. And so you could exacerbate the problem by trying to remove something that hasn't done anything yet. Yeah. Uh, if you see a leopard, do not threaten it, move away. Understand that a mere sighting is not dangerous. Leopards are cautious and will avoid a confrontation with human beings. And also, don't expect the cat to understand man-made boundaries. The cat will come onto your land or property if food is there. So be especially alert after dark and avoid going into the thick vegetation. Uh, Krishna Tiwari of the City Forest Initiative was created in part uh, to educate people living in areas where leopards commonly appear. Its aim to raise awareness of the animals is not only to protect humans from leopard attacks, but also to protect the cats. That's kind of all I have in terms of, you know, general keep safe statistics and all that. Are there any questions at this time? Hmm. Um, did those children who lived those eight years with that leopard and get like therapy or something? <laughs> Actually, can I read you something? Yeah. The epilogue of that? It's actually interesting that you you mentioned it. Um, I didn't want to do the epilogue because I was like, oh, we don't need to do it. But this is actually an interesting part that he mentions. Um, well, because I was thinking if you're a child in that area and it was eight years, that's basically your childhood and then some. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So this is the epilogue. I also want to quote, he uses some language that's like super not PC, but I'm going to quote what I can. The events I have narrated took place between 1925 and 1926. 16 years later, in 1942, I was doing a war job in Marut, and my sister and I were invited one day by Colonel Fly to help entertain wounded men at a garden party. The men, some 50 or 60 in number, were all from all parts of India, were sitting around a tennis court just finishing a sumptuous tea and getting to smoke sage or getting to the smoking stage when we arrived. Taking opposite sides of the court, my sister and I started to go around the circle. The men were all from the Middle East and after arrest were to be sent to their homes. Some on leave, some on discharge. Music in the form of a gramophone with Indian records had been provided by Miss Fly, as my sister and I had been requested to stay until the party gave over, which would be in about two hours' time, we had ample time to make our circuit of the wounded men. I got about halfway around the circle when I came to a boy sitting in a low chair. He'd been grievously wounded, and on the ground near his chair were two crutches. At my approach, he very painfully slid off his chair and attempted to put his head on my feet. He was woefully light, for he had spent many months in the hospital. And when I picked him up and made him comfortable in his chair, he said, 
I have been talking with your lady sister, and when I told her I was Garhwali, she told me who you were. I was a small boy when you shot the man-eater, and as our village is far from Rujaprayag, I was not able to walk there, and my father, not being strong, was unable to carry me, so I had to stay home. When my father returned, he told me he had seen the man-eater, and that with his own eyes he had seen the sahib who'd shot it. He also told me of the sweets that had been distributed that day, his share of which he had brought back for me, and of the great crowds he had seen. And now, Sahib, I will go back to my home with great joy in my heart, for I shall be able to tell my father that with my own eyes I have seen you. And maybe if I can get anyone to carry me to the fair that is held every year at Rujapriag to commemorate the death of the man-eater, I shall tell all the people I met there that I have seen and had speech with you. The cripple on the threshold of manhood, returning from the wars with a broken body, with no thought of telling the brave deeds done, but only eager to tell his father that with his own eyes he had seen the man who years ago had not the opportunity of seeing, a man only whose only claim to remembrance was that he had fired one accurate shot. A typical son of Garhwal, of that simple and hardy hill folk, and of that greater India, whose sons only those few who live among them are privileged to know. It is these big-hearted sons of the soil, no matter what their caste or creed, who will one day weld the contending factions into a composite whole and make India a great nation. So they get therapy, but I will say that Corbett was very loved, and I think that there was some great relief that came with it. You know, uh, it's 1918 between 1926. Do you all know what is a big thing happening in 1918, 1919? Not in India. But <laughs> influenza, yeah. Spanish influenza Spanish is, has hit worldwide. And so I think those are people who are used to hardships in a lot of ways. It doesn't downplay the trauma that they experienced. Um, but this is, this would not be their first nor last encounter with leopards like this, you know, in an area where you have 26 leopards every hundred square miles uh, in certain areas, you're going to run into them again. That being said, yeah, absolutely. They should get some fucking counseling <laughs> um, but they're also fighting in wars and I just wonder how much of this was like just replaced with other fears <laughs> anyway yeah I think it's um, I mean at that time like in a lot of ways like the Spanish flu was very like traumatic in its own way and so 40 to 60 million people died most of whom between 20 and 40 years of age yeah i have to know because of my job <laughs> and like he said kind of like in the beginning of the first episode right like a lot of the bodies weren't able to be cremated just like at the rate that people were dying mm-hmm. and i mean yeah that temporary problem became a, a very long-term problem mm-hmm. and the unintended consequences of it it's you know it's funny is it's very similar it's not funny but um what's interesting is that when similar to it is uh do you remember i actually titled this episode the most dangerous game which is the book <laughs> yes and it's what our old dnd one shot was based off of and that villain i had you all fight she had come from a made-up sect of people who after World War II uh, were a part of a military command operation to deal with. And this is a real thing that happened. We have so many bodies on the battlefield. You don't have enough people to clean it up. Animals start feeding on it, much like the leopard did with influenza. 
and wolves became a much bigger problem after the wars because they had fed on dead people and then those dead people, those bodies were gone. And so they started going to real people for it. Um, or live people. Yeah, no, live people. And so, uh, you know, history repeats itself over and over again. But it does teach us, like, these are the patterns that set up man-eaters. I think um, the most misunderstood thing of man-eaters is that they're an animal that is old and unable to hunt natural prey or that they get a taste for human flesh and blah, 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 blah. There is some truth to, like, an older animal will start going for different prey sources. Unfortunately, P-22, the famous Hollywood... uh, Puma that was recently euthanized. Uh, he was the guy, he was the Puma that was taken in front of the Hollywood sign. He was the only Puma in LA, like the only one. And so he was, he spent the last like 10 years of his life alone. Um, but we had to put him down because he started attacking people's dogs and specifically people who were walking their dogs. Like they, were t- <sighs> and so that's different behavior. Like yes. that's an animal that after 10 years or 12 years of doing nothing, like he had never attacked anybody. And they started doing it and they're like, oh, something's wrong. And yeah, he had gotten hit by a car. And had a lot of external and internal injuries that just, you know, made him have to switch to a different food source. That being said, our leopard was in his prime when he started hunting people. It's because of the easiness of the prey source. Not that he has, like, a taste for human flesh. It's like, why the fuck would I go after a buffalo when I can just get this kid? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, that's that's the harrowing story of Corbett and, and his leopard. Um, we're going to finish this out with our lessons and our shout outs. I would like to start with our pop culture shout outs. I'm going to steal the one that maybe everybody's going for, which is Bagheera from the Jungle Book, because he's an Indian leopard. Um, I love both versions. I love the old. I, I okay, I, we've talked about this before. I love all the Jungle Books that have come out. I love the original. The, ni- the 2019 one was a pretty damn good remake of a, of a film. And I love the Netflix one. And in all of those ones, I love how they portray Bagheera every time. Um, he is just this like very militant, studious guy that I don't know. I just like him a lot. Yeah. I just remember I saw one of the Jungle Books or something in theaters, and it was a 3D movie, and like I got three pairs of 3D glasses, and none of them worked, <laughs> so I just watched it with a headache. No. <laughs> don't recommend. But you can say your shout out. Um, yeah, my shout out is to another leopard of the same continent. Uh, shout out to Tai Lung from uh, Kung <gasps> oh, Fu Panda. Yeah. yeah, that's actually, it's also a shout out to what Axel originally wanted to do with this episode, which is snow leopards. But, oh, really? Um, audience, yes. there are no recorded snow leopard attacks, so I couldn't do shit with that. <laughs> It'd be an hour of silence. <laughs> and then I'd start talking about facts, and that's it. Yep. <laughs> um, my shout out is Melon. From B stars, oh creepy little. Gosh. <laughs> it's kind of like a weird, almost like fitting. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> don't like this one. Oh, I didn't even think of Melon. I can't wait till he starts showing up in the anime. Yeah, he's he like a creepy little guy, and like <laughs> kind of like this <laughs> leopard is just like unsettling and weird. Well, yeah, well. Spoilers. I mean, this one's like a gazelle. And I was going to say, spoilers. Uh, it's not just that he's a leopard that's weird. It's that he's a leopard gazelle. So he's like outwardly a gazelle, except for the very sharp teeth in his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's an interesting, uh, isn't he supposed to be like an interesting um, counterpoint to Legoshi in terms of. Yeah, like character wise and like arc wise. Yeah, he's almost like in so many ways, like the perfect contrast of what Legoshi wants to be. And cool. Is trying to be, but yeah. 
Well, those are good shout outs. Love this. Tai Lung is also a good choice. These. So um, when I watched movies as a kid, one of the things that I loved thinking about, especially with animated films, is like, oh, this would be a good video game sequence. His breakout mm-hmm. from the prison. Yeah. That would have been a, such a good fucking quick time event. Uh, <sighs> no. sequence. He's, like, just so smart in the way that he's, like, able to, like, read his opponents is, like, super scary to the fact that, like, this, like, the episode that we're doing kind of, like, matches up. With like yeah. his behavior. Also, yeah. he was really cute as a co. He's yeah, he's so cute. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're gonna go to our lessons. My lesson is pretty serious, which is you know, if you don't succeed, try again. Tenacity. <laughs> Tenacity pays off. Seriously, I'm being legitimate, but like, I I commend Corbett that in the face of failure of ten plus weeks of trying to hunt something, and. You know, it's it's mind-boggling to me that the only reason he got it was like, ah, fuck it, I'm gonna spend the last night I want. Like, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna leave tomorrow, I might as well spend the last night outside. Mm-hmm. If he had not done that, that leopard would have still gone on. So, that's my lesson. Mm-hmm. Well, my lesson, um, you know, after an event like this happens, just keep your loved ones close and just make sure that they're safe. And, you know, if there's another leopard in the area, just keep an eye out. <laughs> yeah. Smart. Yeah. I think mine kind of echoes both of you in that way of um, you never know what's going to be out there. Because um, I feel like, you know, in the events of tragedy, this like happened and it's like, you know, who could have predicted or who, like, why now? Why after this? And it's like. You don't know, like, what the repercussions of something that was kind of innocuous, like, will lead. Kind of makes me, you know, wonder about, you know, with the coronavirus and, like, still going on. But, like, uh, there's a lot of other areas that have more predators that... But somebody keep That's, an eye on. Yeah, I mean... We're better learned, hopefully, now. Yes. It's been over 100 years <laughs> since... Or almost 100 years since this happened, so... Yes, but I do believe uh, Corbett, he did do a good thing when he was feeling frustrated to take a break and, like, come back when he's cooled. Mm-hmm. Cooled off a little bit, because uh, sometimes that is exactly what you need to do to kind of, like, refuel and, like, build your resolve up again against this like force of <laughs> spite almost it feels like oh exactly yeah well these are good lessons good shout outs good episode good season good season oh actually i think i have another lesson go for it um give us your wisdom <laughs> i don't have any you're apparently you do <laughs> um but you know just have a friend that's gonna like make sure that you're not going too far oh like, have an, have an like yes. man just chill that's actually a good one too keep you in check a little bit yeah. <laughs> this is why group projects work this is why i have COVID. Yes. <laughs> so Ambria, no. let's reel it in a little bit <laughs> land the plane land yes. the plane <laughs> okay well Thank you both for being here and for providing your great expertise for 10 episodes. And I cannot wait for 10 plus more. And thank you to our listeners for the continued support. Genuinely, if we did not have you, we wouldn't be here. Like, I wouldn't be doing this if no one was listening. And so I hope that you all have learned something maybe and that you have a great few weeks while we recuperate and I start building more stories. And we'll be back, hopefully with season two. 
I don't know what else to say about how to cap this other than bye. <laughs> Stay tuned, folks. See y'all next time. Oh, okay. Well, bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>